Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of DPS in the new year. It's 2019, and in just a few months' time, we will be celebrating our two-year anniversary. It's really, really hard to believe that we have been going for almost two years now. Big thanks to all of our listeners, supporters, and patrons over those years. We could not have done it without you. We have a lot of big things planned for the coming year. We've made some ambitious moves already in the past couple of months. And uh, I think we are well on our way to expanding this project and building the new left agenda. And we, again, could not do it without you. So thanks again. Uh, This interview with Vivek Chibber is brought to you by our patrons. As always, head over to www. A lot of W's in there. Patreon.com forward slash dead pundits and check out our reward tiers. The $5 tier will get you access to our B-sides, which are going to be coming out with increasing frequency in the new year. Amy Therese is joining us for a really banger of a B-side that's going to be released later this week. At $10 per month, you'll get access to the Weekly Rundown, which is a weekly news and views podcast from a socialist perspective. We kick those off in December, and I think we've got a really good response to those. And we're going to be tweaking those and inviting guests on to break down the hottest and most important stories of the day. At the $15 level, you'll have access to our Working Class Heroes tier, and you will be getting an ebook every other month, and you'll be able to take part in our reading series, our book club. This time around in late January, we're going to be having our book club, our first inaugural book club. We're going to be discussing Leo Panitch and Sam Gindon's The Socialist Challenge today. And uh, word on the street is that we're going to be joined by... Either or both and perhaps Leo Panich and Sam Ginnon themselves. Uh, it's in the works, but I think that Leo and Sam's schedule uh, should work out. And one of them will be joining us to field questions directly from our working class heroes. So if you're a fan of their work and you want access to those brilliant men, join at the working class heroes tier. And uh, those $15 pledges really help to keep me doing this because as many of you will know, This is now my full-time job, and a full-time job it is indeed. I'm putting in long hours, and those $10 and $15 pledges go a long way to helping me be able to do this. But we love our $5 pledges as well. Uh, We couldn't do this without every single one of you. So if you want to help support this project and keep it going, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today. All right, on with the interview with Vivek Chibber. It's a really great one. Unfortunately, the video, sorry, the audio quality rather, is a little bit um, less than what I like to put out. It is quite legible. You can hear Vivek clearly throughout 99% of the interview. He does cut out at times. Uh, You may have to listen a little bit closely uh, for just a few seconds throughout the interview. I really deeply apologize for that. We pride ourselves on having one of the best audio quality podcasts for a remote interview show out there, even better than some of the mainstream. And uh, I take a lot of pride in that. I do. I wear it on my sleeve, folks. But this one's a little bit less than what I like to put out. But uh, we were at the mercy of Skype and technology that day. So, But it's a really banger of interview. Don't miss the last half. The last half, we go into some of the essentials of class politics and anti-essentialism. I know some of my diehard listeners will really enjoy that. All right, enough out of me. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. 
Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me for this week is a very familiar guest. Vivek Chibber is a professor of sociology at NYU. And more importantly for our purposes, he is the editor and founder of Catalyst Journal. And he has written and published under the Catalyst imprint here three really crucial pamphlets for Marxist educational purposes. And we're going to be talking about those at length today. Vivek, thanks so much for joining us once more. My pleasure. So these pamphlets are just being released here in time for the holiday season. It's my understanding that they have received quite a reception from socialists and militants across the United States and across the world. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of targeted intervention that you folks at uh, Catalyst and Jackman were trying to make in publishing these these pamphlets. So why this and why now? Well, actually, the idea of the pamphlets uh, didn't really have a connection with this juncture politically, except in a kind of a distant sense, which is that I'm involved in a number of educational efforts in India uh, and occasionally also in the U.S., around class politics, capitalism, socialism. And when we have these educationals, it was kind of frustrating that there's very little introductory material out there for people who aren't already in university or in graduate school or don't have a history of politics. When Whenever we have educationals, they ask for some introductory material and you find yourself forced to go back to the 30s or the popular front era or some isolated small pieces here and there that are most more recent, but none of it speaks in the language of the day. None of it has historical references that people would be familiar with. And it's all very choppy. So a few years ago, I started thinking, you know, we really need some introductory material. And it, it was kind of low ambition. I thought I'd write a few short pieces on basics of how capitalism works. And I was you know, sort of committed to doing that. But then, of course, this whole moment with Bernie Sanders, the explosion of the DSA, and suddenly capitalism, the uh, analysis of capitalism being back in the air. Then I started talking to Bhaskar uh, Shankara about this at Jacobin, saying that we should try to do something more ambitious. I'm going to write these anyway. Why don't we release them as catalyst pamphlets? And of course, since it's a catalyst, is simply a satellite of Jacobin, Jacobin would do the editing and the production and release them. And Bhaskar was very excited and very interested in that. So over the past 12 months or so, I, I wrote these and I, I finalized them. It took some doing because Catalyst itself took a lot of time and I'm already a, a full-time you know, a professor. But we got it done. And uh, what's great is that the even before we released them, when word got out that I was doing this, a lot of people from other countries India and the Middle East, Europe heard about it and said they wanted to do translations of their own. So we were able to actually get about 10, I think by now 12 translations also done, which we'll be releasing soon. So what what was intended to be simply a small project to help in my outside educational that I do ended up being a much more ambitious intervention in the Times and it's met with a, a very good response so far. Pamphlets are selling very well, I'm told. So everything looks good. Well, that's great news. Uh, when I got my start, I was reading Paul Sweezy's Theories of Capitalist Development uh, a decade ago. So people should yeah. be very thankful for the service. Yeah, that was that written you... in 1940. That's right. Yeah, and, and that's kind of an advanced book. It, it's intimidating to a lot of people. So we, we needed something that kept the technicalities out of it. 
Certainly, certainly. I mean, I read that uh, at the behest of uh, David Harvey mentions that in his lectures at one point. I believe uh, Rick Wolf is a big uh, was a big proponent of that book back way back when as a, as a starter. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's there's uh, mathematics in there that I still don't understand today as yeah. not a trained economist. And and so this is a really important service. And I think people should really not take this for granted if they're uh, entering the socialist universe in the past couple of years. Uh, the 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 kind of educational materials that are at people's uh, disposal, I think are going to pay huge dividends in the coming years. But since, you know, my first question kind of flopped in respect of uh, trying to get you to assess the current conjuncture, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear that these uh, these educational materials uh, predated the current upsurge. But talk to us a little bit about the state of the American left. Uh, what do you see in terms of the next couple of years going forward into the Bernie Sanders wave? We have uh, a DSA that has exploded and I I think uh, most inside and outside of that organization would agree that people are still struggling to find exactly what the meaning of that organization is and what kind of impact it can make on the political scene. There are a lot of other actors that are, you know, leaning more in the progressive direction that I think are very much in our orbit as socialists. I'm, I, you know, I made a joke off air before we we got going here that. I hope you send 10,000 of these pamphlets to the Justice Democrats because these are people who have very strident criticisms of capitalism, uh, at least in essence. But in yeah. substance, their policies tend towards taming the rough edges of capitalism, if you will, in a, in a very wrong-headed uh, sort of way. So what's your analysis of the current conjuncture? These, these are big questions, but you're yeah. you're certainly the man to answer them. Uh, well, <laughs> thanks. The, the Conjuncture is still, I think, the best and the most promising that we've seen uh, in my lifetime, for sure. And that means definitely in your lifetime. Um, and what, despite the promises that it holds, of course, it can go in a variety of different directions. And one can think about it in terms of the, the balance of forces and where things are going at a very macro level. And then also about organizationally what sorts of sprouts are out there that might be able to take advantage. Uh, and the fundamental situation is that in the United States and in much, much of Europe, the ide as an ideological project, neoliberalism is on its heels. One might even say that it, it's literally lost a lot of legitimacy. That means that politically, for people who are trying to get some traction on the left, in trying to organize uh, against at least the worst varieties of capitalism, if not capitalism itself, it presents an opening that we've never had, certainly since Reagan, but really even since before that, since the 60s. Now, that's a very positive situation. But all we're saying is that ideologically, a certain economic model has lost legitimacy. Politically and organizationally, we're the weakest we have been in about 100 years, the left. So you're in a situation where there's enormous frustration, enormous anger among the population, but there's no organized presence of the left to take advantage of. Now, what there is organizationally is a very small number of tiny microsects, which politically really don't have a lot of relevance. They're mostly campus organizations or around nonprofits or something like that. And they really just talk to themselves and amongst themselves. Um, the DSA has emerged as something very important, basically because of its size. There's so much of the weakness of the American left comes from the fact that it's just so, so minuscule that it's incapable of actually generating politics. It ends up following where politics is and where energy is, but it can't generate any kind of thing. Potentially, the DSA is an organization that can change that through sheer weight. Now, the difficulty is that it's got many, many different 
political ideological tendencies within it because anybody can join for any particular reason. And inevitably, because it is still not really based in a working class setting, I would imagine they haven't, as far as I know, they haven't done an audit, but I would imagine that most of the members are somewhere in the professional classes. And not surprisingly, many of them veer towards either some sort of identity politics or virtue signaling or uh, some kind of lifestyle politics. What we would call a socialist left is quite small within that. But that's to be expected. It's really not a surprise at all. I, 10 years ago, when I used to sort of ruminate on if the left would ever revive in the United States, one knew that it would be a pretty motley crew just because of the history of the past years. But, again, simply from sheer size, even a small section of the DSA, if it has, if it's committed to traditional left politics, uh, it's going to be quite large. And for something, for an organization like that to come around now, when there's about to be the second wave of organizing around a Bernie Sanders campaign in then about a year or so, I think you have something to build on and potentially someplace very positive to go with it. I think that's uh, a very hopeful picture to paint for us here, uh, having someone uh, from yourself who has an international perspective and has been on the left a lot longer than the average uh, millennial or millennial adjacent type of socialist uh, like myself and many in my audience. Um, here's a little hot take for you. I want kind of your assessment of this. It sort of occurred to me that the state of DSA right now, it's almost like a party organization that lacks a party in a sense. Is that, yeah, I, mean, I, wouldn't think call, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't call it a party at all. I'd call it a giant social club. Right. I mean, well, what, what I mean to say, what suggest is that, you know, it, it, it almost seems like it's missing a larger, uh, uh, organization that's, that has explicit political aims in mind, such as policy, elected officials, uh, various other types of, you know, uh, political oriented activities and such that DSA uh, could exist within a, a larger apparatus like that and, and function quite successfully as a as kind of social, cultural kind of entity. But for but yeah. oddly enough, it's sort of putting the cart before the horse in that. Yeah, sense. yeah. It's like you have essentially you have a mass front before you have a party. Right. This is what, what we have right now. And I wouldn't um, I, I wouldn't diminish its importance too much, though, because mm-hmm. it does have some coherence around a very broad social democratic politics. And the people who tend to veer towards a deep hostility to any kind of class politics, et cetera, I don't know if there's beyond a you know noticeable plurality within the organization. I think when Sanders runs this, the next campaign, one can expect the organization to do a lot of work around that campaign. And one will also, one will also expect an influx of new blood as well into it who are energized by the platform that he's going to run on, which is going to be a traditional social democratic platform, which is what he ran on last time. And these are all good things. To a lot of the campus left, social democracy is like a four-letter word. You know, it, it takes a kind of a childish mentality to think you're going to go from where we are now to some kind of dual power. And these are all just debating points around coffee and beer or something, but it's not politics. You're going to have to build... If you seriously think about revolutionary ruptures, dual power, all that kind of stuff, you need to have an organization, a serious organization, and it needs to be rooted in the real power centers of the economy, which is workplaces. We're nowhere near that. So one can, of course, pick holes in the platform and one can talk about how he's not 
a true revolutionary and how Lenin would have been very disappointed or whatever. But he is what he is, and it's the best opening we've had in a very long time. And the Justice Democrats, the people around Sanders, they're all people who, in pushing for a traditional social democratic platform, but calling it socialism, give an opening to socialists, which social democrats in Europe refuse to give. So it's a very strange conjuncture. And, you know, you've got to be able to think on your feet. These these catechisms that the left has memorized, the eight-step program to socialism, it's not how politics works. Right. Well said. I could definitely, uh, we definitely need a lot more of that uh, on on the U.S. left. And I think there is, as you've mentioned, a really uh, committed and militant group of socialists within and without DSA who are very excited and committed to building that kind of project. And the pamphlets that you have just released are going to be a vital component uh, to that. And and in a sense, what you've done here is you've taken us back to Marx uh, without uh, the trappings of Marxology, perhaps, I think, which yeah. I think is very important in this in this uh, particular day and age. And that first pamphlet, by the way, I'm going to put uh, the link in the show notes for listeners out there to pick up some of these pamphlets. Um, if they have a mass order, are you? Uh, it's my understanding that you're going to be doing something uh, for unions, uh, party organizations, uh, things like that uh, to, to bring in uh, bulk orders. Is that right? Well, that's the hope that uh, unfortunately, not a lot of unions do educationals anymore. So, and if you do to them, only a tiny number would be happy with the things that are these pamphlets are saying. Uh, the idea of militant trade unionism, class struggle is anathema to a lot of unions in the United States these days. So, uh, you know, one hopes that they do a lot of bulk orders, but um, I'm, I'm not uh, pinning my hopes on that. Uh, what I expect will happen is. Um, there will be locals here and there that will make some of these orders. There will be, of course, political organizations, student study groups that order them. And we're hoping that there will be a lot of international orders as well. Right. I think there's a, a tremendous opening for uh, trade union militants out there in, in the audience. Um, or if you know one, you know, most locals nowadays don't even have education committees anymore. No, they don't. And so there's an opening, though, because there yeah. isn't one. There's no competition uh, for, oh, yeah. for such a for such an entity to be created, at least on, on an ad hoc basis or kind of an unofficial basis. And so yeah. pick up some of these pamphlets and you might uh, be able to to bring some of the folks into the fold. So let's talk about the first one, Understanding Capitalism. It's a, it's a relatively, it's a long essay, but a short pamphlet. And for what yeah. it is, I mean, it's essentially you're breaking down volumes one, two, and three of Marx's Capital uh, for a lay audience in a very understandable uh, way within, in a contemporary uh, in a contemporary setting using, you know, business and work uh, relationships that people experience every day. So talk to us a little bit about that first pamphlet. I certainly don't want to give a, a total rundown of this. We're not going to go to MCM to MCM prime or, or what have you, but uh, talk to us uh, about your, your main thrust uh, in, in this particular pamphlet. Well, the first pamphlet really tries to lay out how the system as a whole works and in particular why the system necessarily does two things. It necessarily produces a lot of misery and insecurity uh, amongst the majority of the population. Uh, and it, through that, it, secondly, it sort of forces people to resist in some way, either individually or collectively, as the only way to, to protect interests against employers and against the wealthy. So it sort, of, it sort of goes through, first of all, what capitalism is, how do we know it when we see it, Secondly, why the, the compulsions of capitalism 
force employers to essentially declare and wage war on their employees, how this war is then experienced by the employees through uh, wage insecurity, through wage stagnation, job insecurity, overwork, underwork also. And then why a system such as that, because it's fundamentally unjust and unfair to people, requires some sort of struggle to humanize it or possibly to transcend it. Now, I, the key to writing it was, though, you're right to say that it sort of distills a lot of what's in Marx. Key, though, was, I think, twofold. One is you can't literally do what a lot of pamphlets do, which is go th through Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3 of Capital, because it's a snooze and people will fall asleep within five seconds. You mean you don't get excited about the amount of shirts and uh, that amount to, you know, various <laughs> yeah, exactly. other household commodities? Yeah, going through the universal equivalent and this, that, and the other. It's just too too technical to people in any way relate to people's own experiences. Uh, the, the second thing is you needed to use a language as a contemporary language, and which isn't intimidating and it's not off-putting like some, you know, pointy-heady I wrote it. I never leave, of course, these are not... It's not like reading People magazine. <laughs> there is some difficulty <laughs> involved in it. But you want to minimize it and you, you want to make it as conversational as possible. So, you know, I tried to do that. These are not um, leaflets. So they, they are intended at people. If, if, the, if, if the U.S. did have a labor party, I would say these are for cadre. These are for the people who are doing the educationals. And there's a level of sophistication in them that I would not have put if I were doing but uh, in spite of that, they are meant to be something that any reasonably intelligent person with a high school education should be able to pick up and understand if they want to put the, the effort into it. So the first pamphlet is just about, about the fundamentals of the system, uh, why it pits people, employers and employees against each other. And then the next two pamphlets take it from there. So talk to us about the specific nature of capitalism a little bit. I mean, my audience is, is quite advanced, I would say, on the whole, but I still think that we could always, you know, benefit from returning to the bread and butter aspects of capital and capitalism, capitalism as an economic system. Uh, some of your, uh, some of the critics, I should say, of not only your approach, but, but my approach here on the show, when I talk about, uh, you know, the, the essence of politics in our particular moment and what we need and bending the stick away from this hyper academic approach, uh, that kind of, that has overwhelmed the left in the past 20 or 30 years. Um, the critics accuse us of ignoring culture. Right. Well, it's horseshit. And I, I, it's just no reason to take any of this stuff seriously. These are all debates that are occurring within the university population. And fine. I mean, if you want to, if people want to have this debate, fine. But nobody has, I mean, last time somebody working at McDonald's or Walmart said, oh, a trade union is, hey, you're ignoring culture. Well, what a preposterous, otherworldly career. It's one thing to say you're not taking up real concerns that we have and that people have. It's quite another to say, uh, you know, what about Borgia? So okay, I don't mean to dismiss your question, but it, it does get tiresome that these are the debates that shows how you know degraded left debates have become. Suddenly you bring up real concerns that touch the lives of tens of millions. Somebody wants to turn it into a theory. But the the essence of capitalism is that a very small group of people have the power to direct and control the lives of tens of millions of others. 
And they do that because they hold in their hand the one thing that those tens of millions of people need, which is access to the basic means of subsistence. That, that's the means of production. And the thing about that is, because in this system, the property holders are driven to put profits above everything else, that means that the power they have over the lives of everyone else, that power is not used for the betterment of those tens of millions, but is used to employ those millions towards ends that have nothing to do with their own interests, their own well-being, etc. And in fact, the system forces capitalists to run roughshod over the basic interests of everyone else. That's, a, that's really all you need to know about the system and why it's unjust. Everything else flows from that. Now, does that ignore culture? Yeah, because it's got nothing to do with culture. <laughs> what a world. So let me ask you, though, uh, not, not only have you made my uh, you've made my relationships uh, with a couple of uh, good friends of mine very difficult. Uh, so but, but. <laughs> you should get some new friends. These things are so simple, Adam. This is this is so blindingly simple yeah. that it takes four years of college education for somebody to be dumbed down to the point where they think it's controversial. <laughs> You just doubled down on these friends, but uh, I guess let me ask him. Let me ask a more pointed question because I mean you're you're certainly uh, you're certainly up to the task of of defending your ideas. What do you make of the demand that we need to account for various aspects of culture for class formation? I guess because that's what I'm trying to address here in this first pamphlet, in this pamphlet A, Understanding Capitalism, is that your approach, uh, the, the Marxist approach that you sort of distill here, is one that is solely focused on identifying class relationships as an economic phenomenon. Why is the economic realm in capitalism determinate in the last instance as one as well one might this say. last instance business is is very misleading that i, mm-hmm. I mean what's what is the second to last instance? is there a <laughs> fourth instance that how many instances are there before you get this is language from Althusser, which makes no sense it's because Althusser himself had a very hard time with causation so he came up with these metaphors to paper over the fact that he had a very weak theory you you hit the nail on the head and this is the distinction that a lot of people on the left I shouldn't say a lot of people in universities mm-hmm. don't quite understand, but people who do the organizing absolutely do. The, the secret to capitalism is that in the macro dynamics that drive the system, what Marx called the laws of motion, it's all driven by non-cultural motivations, what's called material interests. So what firms do, the fact that they're forced to accumulate, the fact that workers show up for their job every day, they they have to subordinate themselves and give up a lot of their autonomy to employers. All, all that is explained by simple basic material necessity that people are forced in. So when you're laying out the rules of the system and how it works, you find that it's culture-free, or at least it's independent of any particular cultural tropes, and cultures adjust themselves to these material necessities. That's another way of saying that at the micro level, people adjust their views of the world, their expectations of the world, etc., their normative stance to these necessities that they're that they're forced to recognize. But when it comes to fighting back and organizing themselves, culture plays a very large role. It's at this point because you have to generate trust, solidarities, you have to induce people to take risks which they don't otherwise are not otherwise inclined to take. You have to get them to uh, undertake sacrifices which they wouldn't otherwise be inclined to do. 
it requires forging certain social identities. It requires forging bonds between people that are not just based on material payoffs, but also have to be based on friendships and sympathy and empathy and such things. So when it comes to what's called class formation, political organizing, generating a culture of trust and solidarity is very, very, very important. But that's why capitalism is stable, is that all the contingency that comes with generating this culture, with forging those bonds, with all the contingencies that culture brings with it are on the side of resistance. All the material, non-cultural, structural logics are on the side of reproduction. And this is why the system as explosive and as exploitative as capitalism has remained in place so long which is that the breakdowns are much more on the side of resistance because it depends on the highly contingent fact of making culture and making solidarities. Whereas the basic laws of the system are essentially extra cultural. They don't depend on the pre-existing cultural formations. They, in fact, force cultures to do them. This is the essence of what Marx was saying when he said that in capitalism, it's the material, the logic of the system that drives it. This is the essence of it, is that when you try to understand the system, it's based on material interests and power. It's when you try to forge resistance that you come to cultural issues. So it's nonsense to say that a Marxist ignores culture. He just puts culture in its appropriate place. Right. As has been said, and I believe you say as much in the pamphlet at one point, uh, perhaps in other words, that capitalism as a system organizes the ruling class and disorganizes the working class. And so yes. I think understanding that that systemic dynamic is why our fight back is so difficult is really crucial. And I want to say that I think that overture that you just gave to the cultural component of the organization of the working class should suffice for anyone who is a good faith listener of the show. Certainly friends of mine, I would say that they would hear that those words come out of your mouth. They may be shocked to hear you say it. In fact, although, I, you know, I, I'm not sure why they would. Uh, but but you do have a reputation for some reason, perhaps stemming back to your work on post-coloniality. <laughs> I don't know. But you know how these reputations. Go. Well, what's, what's called the left, you know, what is the left in the U.S.? <laughs> it's, it's people who sit in seminars and read a lot of theory. There's some, you know, when nobody on the organized left for 100 years brought up these issues because it was understood that culture matters, of course, but in particular ways. It was understood. What is a revolutionary from, say, 1890 to 1960? All these people who you read now, Luxembourg, Lenin, Trotsky, they spend their entire lives trying to generate cultures of solidarity, talking about culture. Gramsci's prison notebooks are Not for one second did they doubt that capitalism is driven by certain logics, certain extra-cultural macro-dynamics. So the idea that Socialists or Marxists don't think culture is important. This is just one of the many, many inheritances, one of the many, many, many uh, shibboleths that the neoliberalization of our culture and the generation of the intelligentsia has created. It's one of the many reasons that, that intelligentsia gives for their own failure to try to understand the system. Doesn't this, doesn't understand that, ignores this, ignores that. And in these 40 years, while these theories have been pr promulgated, it's the greatest, the most obvious instance of the forcible imposition of structures and the logic of structures that we've ever seen. But people want to hear about contingency and culture. Just 
this is the left. Yeah, it does seem to be the the nature of academic trends to be uh, justly refuted, even as they are being insisted upon. Hart Negri comes to mind with the Iraq War, and <laughs> you can, I mean, the <laughs> list is almost endless. The claims of their yeah, the the the, board, the role of the nation state has uh, dissolved uh, in the midst of one of the most uh, you know muscular expressions of the nation state in the last fifty some odd years. Uh, in any in any case, we'll step away from academic debates and get back to the pamphlets. Pamphlet number one is essential reading. It gives, like I said, a, a very uh, important and contemporary interpretation to the idiom of capitals, volume one through three. Um, but and, and that's there. I think you know you have a lot of persuasive arguments uh, about why the system, why it is a systemic issue here. And so everyone we're talking to today uh, is is a, is a committed socialist, and I think that's why pamphlet number two, at least in my estimation, is the most important here. And this one is on capitalism and the state. Talk to us a little bit about what the central themes were in this pamphlet that you wanted to convey, because I think one of the the hobby horses on this podcast and uh, all of the political projects that I take very seriously and try to contribute to is pushing the centrality of the capitalist state in political organizing and action today in such a way that the kind of anarchist zeitgeist uh, that seems to be fading away, at least we'll say, has ignored for, for many decades. Um, a lot of what we're talking about right now is going to, is going to fade away uh, over the next two years. At least if, if politics continues to go the way it is right now, um, a lot of these idiotic debates and objections that one sees coming out of seminar rooms are going to be sidelined because there's something at stake now. In academic debates, nothing is at stake except showing off or getting a promotion or getting a job. So that said, the essence of the second pamphlet is pretty simple. In the outside the state, within the system itself, in the battle between haves and the have-nots, uh, there's an enormous structural advantage that the haves, the wealthy have, has nothing to do with culture. It has to do with their control over material resources, which gives them an advantage in virtually every political domain, in every domain where there's a contest uh, of power. Now, one of the promises of liberal theory is that, yeah, that might be true in the economy and in civil society, but the other great center of power in modern society is the state. And the state in a democratic setting is a neutral. It has no particular reason to side with one group or the other. And B, the good news is uh, because it's a democracy and in a democracy, it's numbers that matter, not wealth. If the poor disaggregate the numbers, they can actually use the state to counterbalance the economic power that the wealthy have. And so you, you can have a kind of a political solution to the economic depredations of capitalism. So first of all, what the pamphlet shows is that that's not the case, that in fact, the incentive structure in capitalism is set up in such a way that far from mitigating the imbalances and inequalities in the economy, the state reinforces them. So the disadvantages that the poor have and the working people have at the workplace are actually reinforced through governmental power. And the state is necessarily, therefore, a biased state towards capitalist interests. That's point number one. The second point, then, is that in spite of this, it's possible to still force the state and ruling classes to concede and to agree to humanizing the system through redistribution and through social welfare policy. 
policies. That requires class struggle. The reason it requires class struggle is that real power in capitalism it does not reside in the state. It's a very powerful entity. But the state is forced to follow and to defend capitalist interests because the capitalist class, owing to its economic power, is able to subordinate all other interests to itself. So real power still resides in the economy. And therefore, even though if you want to get to the government and use government to better the conditions of working people, it's not enough to put the right people in government. What you need to do is accumulate power within the economy, through class organizing, within workplaces, within neighborhoods. The only time we've seen states in capitalism significantly bend towards the poor is when the poor have accumulated real power as a class. So what the second pamphlet does then is to show, A, the mechanisms by which states subordinate themselves to the wealthy, and then secondly, the mechanisms by which the poor can try to force this, this coupling of the state and the wealthy, they can force them to uh, give, give concessions and to agree to, to redistribution, to a welfare state, to social democracy. So it's basically a, a pamphlet about how the state relates to class struggle. So in this sense, the capitalist state plays a vital role in organizing the classes in terms of what their political capacities might be. Talk to us a little bit about the way that the state uh, either does or either organizes or disorganizes various class forces. And my target here, and this is another uh, hobby horse, I, I could call it uh, on, on uh, DPS, is this idea that we might have something that looks like completely independent working class organization that happens outside of the state, which very quickly dissolves into a sort of either in uh, uh, what I would call a messianic insurrectionist kind of approach to uh, social change or an anarchist one. Um, so talk to us about you, right. seem to, you seem to believe that the state plays a vital role, um, not only in you know, expressing certain kind of political imperatives, potentially uh, either in a, in a positive direction or in a conservative reactionary direction, but also that the, the, the working class necessarily must work in and through the state in a certain sense. Uh, what, what's your what's your take on that? Uh, that's a tough question, Adam. I, I, I'm not sure I would. Take, take, stake out my view quite as strongly as you've described it right now. I, I do think that two things. One, one is that working class organization cannot rely on the state. It has to occur outside and independently of the state. Mm -hmm. If it relies on the state, it's going to be in trouble because of the state's own partisanship and its bias towards capitalists. So rely is a very strong word. With the history... In, of the global South is one where, in fact, they have, to a great extent, had to rely on state support for working class organizations because those organizations have tended to be very weak and very embattled. And the result over time has been a progressive weakening of those organizations because they become sucked into the state. So I don't think it's quite correct to say that working class organizations necessarily have to work through the state. I do think. So first of all, I think the real muscle and the the strength of the organizations has to be built to the extent possible independently of the state. 
Mm-hmm. That doesn't, however, mean that you avoid the state. In a modern bourgeois society, that's just not possible. So while they don't necessarily rely on the state, it is advisable that they orient towards the state in some way. Reasons. One is that any meaningful societal and macro level policy shifts are going to come through the state. You're not going to do it workplace by workplace, neighborhood by neighborhood, state by state. So if more people's organizations want to have society wide changes in social policy and economic policy, even in uh, the terrain, the, the, the landscape on which they're doing their organizing, it's going to involve changing state policy in some way. So they have to orient towards it. Uh, second reason is that in these countries and capitalist democracies today, it's just an unavoidable fact that politics overwhelmingly revolves around the state, around elections, around state campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, on principle, say we boycott elections, we don't take part in them, we're going to avoid them. If you say that on principle, you're essentially embracing marginality. So you have to figure out some way of relating to the state. It's going to be something that is necessary at some point. And every movement, labor movement that's grown beyond a point has done that. One of the reasons you see on the U.S. left people insisting that on principle you avoid the state is because the state wouldn't have them if they wanted to. <laughs> it's an instance of marginality. So you can entertain these fantasies that, that we're just going to be on our own island of organizing and we're not going to touch the state because it's impure and we're going to stay on the path of purity. It's never happened anywhere where movements have grown beyond um, and the reason it hasn't happened is that it's just a political necessity in the world today. You, it gives you an opening into the, the everyday people and their lives that otherwise is very hard to get when you're a very small left. And secondly, once you accumulate a certain amount of power, it's inevitable. You're going to have to orient to the state. Either you prepare for that and figure out how to do it, or you'll be overwhelmed by it. And I think the latter is something we'll avoid. So let's talk in a more embedded sense uh, about our current political conjuncture with that respect. Well, what kind of role do you see the Bernie Sanders movement playing inside of the state? Because reading your pamphlet, I mean, it's full of warnings and uh, pitfalls and traps uh, about how the capitalist state is necessarily oriented in the direction of capital accumulation and thus it privileges uh, the capitalist class. How does an anti-capitalist force um, intervene in and through the state, at least uh, partially uh, in, in, interacting uh, in and through the state? Well, it's not possible to answer this kind of question except at a very abstract level mm-hmm. uh, because the, the real, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating here. You, you have to, right. to, for these debates to be meaningful, they have to come down to the level of should they be doing X right now or not? Should they be doing Y or not? That kind of thing. But to ask these more concrete questions, you also have to have a more uh, general, more abstract lo- understanding of how the state works and how politics works. So let me just then attend to your question at this more abstract level, and maybe that can help discipline the more concrete conversations. The, at the abstract level, the what a Sanders or a Corbyn or any of these people can do is actually, it's not that complicated. It's the only way that su- they succeed is by accumulating power outside the state. That, that's the, the gist of what I'm trying to say in the pamphlet, and I've me, I think this is just what socialists have not only said, but have found to be true in about 100 years of experience now. The way in which a Sanders succeeds or a Corbyn succeeds is by having some sort of threat, political threat, 
that they can use to leverage concessions out of their enemies within the state, political parties and the representatives of capital. Well, what kind of power can they accumulate? Ideally, of course, what you want is you want real organizational presence in the actual sinews of the system, which is workplaces. Now, you know, that's easier said than done. Um, you, the second best alternative is to have other kinds of disruption, whether it's within neighborhoods, whether it's within uh, in the streets, et cetera. Now, a real show of strength, of an organized ability to um, upend the system to, as Pippin and Clyde would say, through, throw sands, through sands, through sand in the rent in the works. Um, and, you know, if you can't get any of those, then you have some sort of protest, uh, some sort of show of organized um, unhappiness with the system, which is what Sanders has been calling for, you know, a million person march to Washington, that sort of thing. Um, what all these have in common is that they're shows of strength outside the state. Now, that's one. The second thing, of course, that you've got to do is use whatever leverages you have outside the state to have realistic, uh, targeted interventions within the state. Now, we don't in the United States have a labor party, which would be the mailed fist, as it were, of social movement. What you're going to have instead is informal caucuses. It's sort of like the English state in the 18th and early 19th century. You organize yourself into caucuses like the Justice Democrats uh, or some sort of left-wing uh, presence within uh, Congress, and uh, you fight the way they're fighting right now to get into committees. All that stuff, um, it's easily absorbed. Uh, you know, without anything outside the state, it's going to be hard. And Sanders, if he comes to power simply on the groundswell of public opinion and elections, he'll manage to do a little bit around the edges. But his own party is going to undermine and destroy everything he's trying to do, unless they're afraid of what's going on now. So a lot to look out for. I think that pamphlet is important in terms of providing that kind of abstract uh, foundation to sort of test the, you know, the, our empirical, you know, judgments or, or assessments uh, as they sort of emerge. One of the things I do in that pamphlet, though, is I do, after laying out the theory, show how it worked out in different historical instances mm-hmm. on the differential ability of people to organize themselves, have parties of their own. Um, I kind of talk about how the 1930s, the 1980s, today, and how those different situations crystallize uh, power balances and how that then leads to different possibilities in the policy sphere as well. You have a wonderful table in, uh, towards the end of that pamphlet on the state. Uh, yes, it's, yes. Uh, it's the labor movement and the labor party. No, yes. Right. People will have to turn <laughs> uh, turn to page 33 in that pamphlet if you're reading along. And there's a beautiful pamphlet. And you, ta- you compare and contrast the U.S. today with the U.S. in 1930s, uh, Europe in the 1990s, and Europe in the 1930s. And you talk about how the joint activity of a labor party and a labor movement have to work together in perfect concert in order to achieve a certain kind of uh, revolutionary outcome or quasi potential revolutionary outcome. So really important things to think about there. And what we call here on this show and other folks have called a kind of inside outside strategy where the labor movement uh, would be, I guess the outside and the labor party would be the inside. And right. uh, those two have to work together in some kind of harmony in order to achieve a scenario wherein we might break from capitalism and start forming a new kind of society, go beyond the political revolution and a social revolution and achieve a, a real economic revolution. 
A lot of really interesting insights in that pamphlet. Let's move on to the third for the final part of our conversation. Uh, this is really, I think, in, this is going to be the, the the inside baseball uh, aspects of this of this mm-hmm. episode because <laughs> that third pamphlet, if there ever was a targeted intervention, I, w- I would judge. And correct me if I'm if I'm off base here, but my feeling after perusing it is that this was written uh, from the left to the left. Yeah, uh, on, I think you on, could say that on selling, uh, you know, existing so people who call even call themselves socialists, the the centrality of class and class struggle to achieving all of the things that we've just been discussing, that kind of uh, economic transformation uh, from the capitalist uh, capitalism in the state pamphlet. Today's left is full of debates around the nature of class. Uh, does class stand along other? Uh, does class stand alongside other ascriptive hierarchies, other ascriptive markers like race, identity, ethnicity, and so on? Uh, should we privilege class above others? Uh, is it the same epistemic kind of uh, object, for, you know, is one way to put it in the way that Barbara Jean Fields kind of uh, corrects folks when they start putting race and gender alongside class? She says, no, 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 class is of a different analytic realm. It's a different analytic kind of category. Was this an intervention in the sort of what some folks have called in momentum in the UK, an intervention against the rad lib zeitgeist that exists on the left today? Only tangentially. In fact, it's actually, you know, the, what the pamphlet is basically doing, the third pamphlet is saying, first, um, first of all, why should labor occupy a special place in um, our struggles for justice? Let's not do it's question begging to say we're socialists because why should we, we be socialists? The issue here is we want social justice and socialists have a particular view of social justice. So let's just go to the keep our eyes on the prize, which is having a more humane society. Mm-hmm. If you want a more humane society, you're agnostic on the issue of race, gender, sexuality, and all that, you know. But is there any reason to put give class special importance? So that's the first question. And then it says, well, if you do give class a special importance, how do you go about building class power? These are the two questions that the pamphlet is addressed to. The answer to the first question is, um, there's no particular reason to give class a centrality in your moral universe. Morally, there's lots of things that matter a great deal. Uh, any kind of oppression, any kind of uh, exclusion and domination is morally reprehensible. And some, in many instances, can be more reprehensible than what we technically call class exploitation. The reason we give class a special importance is because of the way capitalism is structured. The importance of class derives from the importance of capital. So if you think that the fundamental power center in modern society that's depriving people of adequate means to a decent livelihood, to the opportunity to flourish, have a decent life. If you think the fundamental power center that is in the way of that is, is the wealth and the ownership of the means of production that capitalists have, then it, your politics has to flow from what social agency and what social group you think contain capital. Now, nobody ever has come up with a better candidate for that than labor. Mm-hmm. So people who say the working class is Marxist, quote, privilege the working class, Fundamentally misunderstand it's not it's not privileging the way I privilege chocolate ice cream over vanilla as an aesthetic case as a random as a sort of unjustified arbitrary act it's not a privileging 
it's a it's an inference that you make based on an analysis of where real power is in this society. And if you think the real power is in the hands of capital, then you have to say which social agency contain capital. And the only social agency that can do that, there's only two. One is the state, and that's why pamphlet two says, don't hold your breath about the state doing it. The second is the people who generate the profits that capital needs, which is their employees. If anybody has a better argument, a better social candidate for that, there's nobody more interested in me hearing that because I would love to join all my other fellow Indians and all these other colleagues I have in fancy universities and say, yeah, the people we should be going after is anything but labor. But if it's a fact that it's labor, then you have to adjust your politics to it. And that's all that I'm, the pamphlet is trying to say. So that question is not something that has been in, that debate is not a debate unique to the contemporary left. Actually, the justification for labor why labor is central has been something that's had to be adumbrated from angles onwards. It's given a special poignancy right now and a special pointedness because of the extreme minority that socialists are now within the left. Most of what's called the left today is not an anti-capitalist left at all. In fact, it has no particular problem with capitalism. It's an anti-discrimination left. So when you approach this left, you have to justify to them why you're talking about labor at all. But it's, I wouldn't say that it's uh, derived, the pamphlet is derived particularly from this moment. It's just made more pressing because of this moment. It seems that the history of the 20th century, and particularly the late 20th century, has been of uh, the left trying to find a substitute for the working class or for labor uh, yeah. throughout the history. You know, in the, in the, yeah. the, the 60s and 70s, and perhaps it was the students. And, and mind you, that's not because the left is out there organizing and he's trying to figure out some. Well, these are mostly just professors and students we're talking about. Their, what we call their desire to find a substitute for labor isn't because they're trying it and it doesn't work. It's mainly because they're disdain for the poor. It's really just a class ideology. How dare they, Vivek? They don't even have a master's degree, for fuck's sake. What do they know about uh, class? No, I mean, in, the, in my years around the university, mostly what I've seen, these attitudes they may, mainly come out of just not liking poor people. Uh, yeah, you talk about culture. There's there's a cultural uh, argument to be to be explored there in in, in some length. Uh, the the kind of cultural biases of the academic PMC left. But uh, but anyway, that would that would fill the better part of the afternoon if we continued on down that line. What do you make of the people who suggest in uh, today's context that we need to put other master narratives alongside of labor and the working class and capitalism? I'm thinking of two that uh, loom large in left debates, uh, certainly in on the socialist left as well, in a variety of different ways. And those two are patriarchy and white supremacy. What do you make of the arguments wherein those two kind of master narratives are put alongside capitalist oppression and exploitation as ex you know, explanations, uh, ways of accounting for the way the world has turned out? Because the argument goes, the counter-argument goes, well, what happens when we rid ourselves of capitalism and patriarchy is still in existence or white supremacy, uh, we're still plagued with white supremacy in our post-capitalist future? What do you make of those kinds of debates? Well, again, if the issue is a moral one that we need to – so if we just get this the kind of – academic language and we just in plain English say what, we're, what we mean here it can be one of two things 
Um, one can be, we need to take seriously other forms of suffering not than just economic suffering, and suffering based on gender or, and on racial oppression, et cetera, and put them alongside on a moral plane, alongside economic de uh, deprivation. The answer, of course, is yes. Uh, and <laughs> what in the history of the socialist movement makes people think they don't take that stuff seriously? What? There's it, it, a level of ignorance. It's not even ignorance. It's, it's just mendaciousness. Uh, so, of course, the answer to that is yes. But if it's a strategic question, then again, you, it comes down to what I said earlier. Do you think that the power center today that is standing in the way of gender justice and racial justice is simply white people or men? Or is it white people and men who have monopoly or tremendous control over the bulk of the economic resources? What's your agenda for let's say, racial emancipation. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Are you, is your understanding of racial oppression based on discrimination? Or is it based on a deprivation of resources and a lack of access to resources? Now, if it's based on deprivation, or sorry, on discrimination, then yeah, you've got no reason to be anti-capitalist. You can fight the anti-discrimination battle. And the left will be there with you. The socialists have to be there with you because it's important to end discrimination. But if you think that to truly emancipate people of color in this country, black people, you need public housing, you need free health care, you need equal access to decent education, all of which requires substantial redistribution. How are you going to do it except through a poor people's movement? And that includes poor black people. How are you going to do it without focusing on... So there's this, this much of the campus left has a very paternalistic and quasi-racist view of people of color. And they don't seem to understand this. And I love being lectured by white people on race. It's one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> this idea that there's something called the black people, black population that doesn't have its own internal differentiation, mm -hmm. in which elite blacks, sure, they don't do as well as elite whites. And 95% of the literature on race is about this. And if you look at middle-class blacks or Blacks who are in upper classes, they don't do as well as whites of the same background. That's true. But they do a hell of a lot better than working class blacks. And if your program does not include significant access to material resources for working class blacks, it's not a program against racial oppression. So if that's what it's going to be against racial oppression and ending racial oppression requires redistribution, how are you going to do it? without taking up the cudgels against the employer class? Again, it's a simple question, and if people come up, can come up with a better answer, I'd love to hear it. Now, does that mean that once you have egalitarian redistribution, it wipes out all vestiges of racial discrimination and prejudice? No, but it'll get you most of the way there, yeah. And socialists need to stop being embarrassed about saying this. Of course, if you actually have redistribution of economic resources and in an egalitarian fashion, the idea that you're still going to have racial oppression, how? On what grounds? What will be the basis of it? So I'm not, I, don't, I don't know where this argument comes from. Nobody on the left made this argument that one is hearing. Leftists saying we're against redistribution. I've never heard it until, until the 1980s. It's all an artifact of the Reagan left. It comes from a sort of uh, trans-historical anti-blackness. 
that emerges from Afro pessimism and, and others like that. And there are a, tr- a tremendous amount of people, movers and shakers, even on uh, the the left right now, being that you know the left really exists. Um, unfortunately, you know, not only in academia, but uh, in in positions like the one I'm sitting in right now, podcast hosts, media presenters constitute way too much weight on the left. Until what's called the left gets out of these circuits. Um, you know, it's just the, the, we're going to keep having these non-debates, these non-issues. Is the earth flat or isn't it? Uh, is Jupiter really simply a god out there in the solar system or is it a big pebble? These, this is the quality of debates we're having these days on the left. And the great thing about this moment is you weren't around in the 90s. Uh, this was all there was in the 90s. <laughs> this kind of nonsense. Um, the thing about the moment is that people are actually just saying, wow, this is really boring shit. Let me just not talk about this. And tr- reframing the question so that they actually touch pe- uh, issues important in people's lives uh, rather than the, the seminar room. Now, one of the ways in which some of these questions emerge in actual socialist organizing, uh, although they, they probably – um, originated in the seminar room, but they have been carried out into the world of socialist politics in organizations like DSA, these kind of uh, liberal notions of anti-discrimination um, and anti-oppression that emerge from a, a very liberal worldview coming from intersectionality, which is grounded in you know liberal uh, bourgeois capitalist liberal case law or what have you. Um, is that if we don't fix our uh, the kind of microaggressions that emerge, it's kind of interpersonal interpersonal oppressions, we'll never be able to organize as a class to fight capitalism. And that that is why we have not come together as a class. That's one of the well, that's one of the tropes that you see coming to uh, coming up just constantly. I mean, it's people have made a name uh, on, on this. On this basis, just article after article, it's it's emerged as the new common sense that the that the socialist project in America has failed thus far, because there's too much racism, there's too much sexism, there's too much transphobia, there's too much ism and obia uh, to go around, and, and people cannot unite on that basis. And so we need to address this oppression as a fundamental precondition for coming together as a class. Uh, that seems to be a very dominant. You know, set of claims on on certainly even the socialist left. What do you make of of those types of concerns? Well, it's of course true. We need to separate a couple of things first. Let's separate the issue of the importance of mutual respect and treating people with a modicum of of decency and respect sure. from the issue of what 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 is responsible for the failure of the left. Right. No way or form is has, is this what's responsible for the failure of the left? That's absurd. Uh, the left because it got its ass kicked uh, by very powerful entities. And that left was pretty well organized and it had figured out a lot of these things already. And I'm talking about by the 1950s, that battle is over. Um, but while we separate, we can separate these issues, it is of course true that no left is going to succeed un- unless and until it takes up as an absolute necessity the importance of mutual respect and an internal culture of decency and civility towards one another. Mm-hmm. Now, this, uh, once again, uh, these 20-somethings sitting in NGOs and campuses are not the first people to recognize this. This is a part something that is just taken for granted than anyone doing the organizing. It is true that 
in the era where you, before the civil rights movement and before the feminist movement, it is no surprise that the, in the internal culture of organizations, you had a lot of forms of behavior that today we would call unacceptable and ha- need, needing to be rejected. And in that sense, carrying the torch forward and raising to a higher standard our behaviors in these organizations is very important. Now, that said, it is also the case that you should expect when you're coming into an organization in a society riven through with gender and racial oppression, that in spite of their best intentions, people might be lacking in certain ways. You have to expect that. A key point is when they transgress, when they say something untoward, are they open and amenable to correcting themselves, to listening, to trying to change their behavior? So is it a sin of omission or is it a sin of commission? But in the left today, because when you go to these organizations and these meetings, literally nothing is at stake because it's a social club, usually a three group. The tolerance is at zero. And in fact, what I've done, I've been in the far left for a while in this country, because I was also in India for a long time, I can compare it. What is shocking on the American scene is how gleeful people are when they find instances of people screwing up. It's these aha moments. And the reason is they don't care about the fact that when they jump down somebody's throat for a minor, whatever you want to call it, microaggression or something, that person who might have had the best of intentions sees a reaction sometimes so out of proportion to what they've done that they never come back again. Mm-hmm. In an organization where there's real politics and you're really trying to get something done, the people who are doing, making the corrections, who are pointing out the, trans- the transgressions, try to have some sense of proportion and try to make some judgment about the person, whether they're an actual racist who's not going to be, not going to correct their ways, who are incorrigible and hence have to be dealt with, or whether it's a well-intentioned person who's just not aware of certain things. You have to make those distinctions in an organization. That is not the case in today's left in the United States. And that's because it's a left without a social base and with really nothing much to do. So in my view, it is, once again, not an insight to say that microaggression, whatever you want to call it, need to be overcome for the left to be able to function. It's fact that the truism. What sets this left apart isn't that it has noticed the importance of microaggressions. It's not. What sets it apart is the way it uses these as a trump to drive people out of organizations and to cripple them before they can ever get going because the what people are after is style points and lording it over others rather than making organizations, organizations function. Right. I was going to point to that in the, the very end there and you got to it uh, quite beautifully is that I think it's it's the collection of social capital that's at stake here in these uh, in, in various forms of status inside of these groups. Um, and you being a sociologist, you might uh, smack me down for this and rightly so. But I always sort of joke that we need a little bit less marks when it comes to analyzing the group dynamics of some of these socialist organizations and we need a little bit more of the Chicago school of sociologists <laughs> to start yes. thinking about in-group, out-group behavior and status seeking and all of these other kind of like anti-Marxist uh, sociological methodologies that emerge in that <laughs> branch of sociology. Uh, yeah, sure, they're anti-Marxist and they don't do us a fucking thing in terms of over- overturning the, the system, but they might tell us quite a bit about the social dynamics that we find on the left today. 
Uh, yeah. Kind of, it, kind this of. is all. So there's two things you have to overcome. You have to overcome the, all these small acts of gender and racial insensitivity, or, and sometimes even outright racism and, and sexism. The other thing you have to overcome is people's inability to forgive. In any organization, you have to have that because you have to start with the acceptance of the fact that people are coming in from an imperfect society with all sorts of baggage. But they've come to your organization in order to evolve, in order to try to generate a different worldview and different forms of comportment. If you jump on their throat the first time they say something wrong, this is not a political act. What you're doing now is drama. This is just theater. Mm -hmm. So it's the people who insist on the centrality of microaggression. They also have to understand that within organizations, you have to cut people a break and you have to make judgments about where they're coming from and what their underlying attitude is instead of turning this into a, something like what we have now, which is these groups never grow beyond tiny 10 to 12 people and kind of unhinged people because same normal people, when they come to an intolerant atmosphere like this, they never come back again. Mm-hmm. That's right. So this lends ourselves uh, quite perfectly to the final question. I like to, to, to leave our audience with a final question. It might be a difficult one or it might be a call to the barricades, whichever is your preference uh, for today. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, these pamphlets are trying to contribute to a project of education. But I think moreover, we're really getting around to something here in this final uh, portion of the conversation, which is the importance of de- building and developing a mature and sophisticated and capacious political culture on the left. And that's not just simply a matter of having the right sort of uh, you know knowledge base, which these pamphlets certainly contribute to. But it's also about, uh, you know, having the kind of environment wherein people can really debate in good faith the way forward, uh, understanding that uh, heterodoxy is absolutely crucial to the proper development of a socialist movement and keeping it dynamic and agile. Uh, the problem I think that we're really sort of talking around in the past 10 or 15 minutes is a lack of a really developed political culture on the left because, you know, it's 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 not – it's almost never the case, actually, when there's an accusation of a certain microaggression that what happened was really cut and dry and straightforward. I think it might depend on one's interpretation of uh, that type of oppression or certain claims to, rep- claims to representation of certain um, oppressed minorities and identities that's really at stake here. So what, what, is your, uh, what are your thoughts on how the left might develop a really successful and mature political culture in today's environment? Well, I really think a lot of that will just take care of itself. Right now, so much of the left is very small groups of very unhappy people um, who bring their unhappiness, these clouds, into every meeting with them and hold it over everyone else. Um, Once the left becomes more, as it were, for lack of a better term, mainstreamed into neighborhoods and workplaces and uh, places where uh, it's not just deeply unhappy people who are seeking a social solution to their uh, unhappiness who are coming to your organization. Once it's people with real concerns and real issues, as the numbers grow, a lot of this will take care of itself because people just are not interested in these, in these, the virtue signaling and the style points and all this that so much of the campus left does right now. Now, that doesn't mean that everything takes care of itself, of course, but it means a certain 
particular kinds of intolerance and narrowness will be left behind. Then real issues. When you say a lot of what is called microaggression is a matter of interpretation, yeah, that's true. But there's going to be, as these organizations grow, there will be real instances of racist attitudes, real instances of sexist and misogynistic attitudes. And you have to know how to deal with those. Those are the real organizational questions. You know, looking at someone the wrong way or coming to the meeting wearing the wrong kind of, you know, maybe a a white woman having a bindi on her forehead or something, and now she's suddenly culturally appropriating. These are just, it's not, it's not that there's a, there's a kind of vagueness to how to interpret it. It's a non-issue. There's nothing, nothing happened here. What we need to figure out is how to deal with actual instances of uh, undemocratic attitudes and racist or sexist attitudes. And that's where, in my opinion, right now we're much better placed than the left was 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 100 years ago because the movements of the past you know, 40 years have really transformed the culture. The left, <laughs> shockingly, hates to hear this. The left doesn't like to hear that there's been actual cultural progress because then it upsets the oppression Olympics and people can't say, no, as being a member of X group, I'm still as oppressed as they were 100 years ago. But the fact is there's been real progress. And in my view, I'm optimistic again because I think once everyday normal people enter left organizations, A, there's going to be more resources available to us to deal with instances of of various kinds of untoward actions. Uh, and B, you know, I think that the people uh, who are um, engaged in them are going to be more open to changing than they were 50 years ago. Everyone basically knows that being a racist is a bad thing, that being a misogynist is a bad thing. People don't really embrace it ideologically. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do better with it. But the people... Harping, pointing to the importance of these issues, these issues of behavior are absolutely right. They just need to get straight about what the level ought to be of, of the, 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 what, what counts as an actual transgression and what, what doesn't. Right. I think that's a really good way to wrap up this conversation. I uh, will link to uh, these pamphlets and how to order them in the show notes. Uh, Vivek Chibber, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. And uh, it's a pleasure as always to have you on. I had you on last year and, and now this year. Let's let's make it a yearly thing. We'll check in uh, as, as events uh, emerge. <laughs> sure. I'll give an annual report on, on my optimism. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother...